Welcome to the 10th episode of Sound Science, a show for science-curious music lovers. To celebrate reaching double figures, I'm going to be taking a look at the last nine episodes and playing highlights. We've had some incredible neuroscientists, psychologists, dancers, musicians, DJs and artists on the show, and I am so excited to hear what they had to say again. Some of you listening might be listening for the very first time. Others may have listened to every episode to date. Either way, thank you so much for tuning in. The first ever episode of Sound Science aired back in September 2018. It was called The Science of Heartbreak, Why Emotional Pain Feels Like Physical Pain and was all about how some of the same areas of the brain are activated in response to feeling emotional pain and also physical pain. So much so that a drug that targets a headache could actually soothe you of your heartache. Here's a clip from my interview with Professor Nathan Dewall from the University of Kentucky talking about some of his research. When people talk about being rejected, they often use words that are related to physical pain. So they say... You know, I feel hurt, I feel crushed, I feel brokenhearted. And this isn't something that's unique to English. I mean, really every known language does this. And so there seemed to be this metaphorical connection. And so uh, we were really curious if there is actually a neurobiological basis for this. And so uh, looking at some previous research, there seemed like there was a, a reason to expect um, this connection neurobiologically, when people feel, you know, left out or lonely or rejected, that their body would actually experience it as if it was experiencing a physical injury. And so we, what we did was we went the next step, is we said, if that's true, um, if you numb people to physical pain, would it numb them to the pain of rejection? And that's how we came up with the idea for this study. So why did we pick acetaminophen mm-hmm. as our drug? Yeah. The main reason is safety. Oh. Because we, con- we consulted with you know, medical doctors and told them about our idea. And I said, you know, what's, what's the safest drug that you think would produce, you know, physical pain? And they said acetaminophen. And so the, the maximum daily dose... We weren't anywhere near the maximum daily dose. And the sample of participants we were using the population were college students, and they're incredibly healthy. And so we, uh, we felt very confident, number one, that we would have really isolated what we were trying to isolate, which is simply reducing pain uh, rather than making people feel better. We were just trying to make people not feel as bad. And number two, that by participating in the study, that people would, would, would be safe. They wouldn't get addicted to acetaminophen because it's not addictive. People took the placebo pills. When they were rejected, their body responded as if they experienced a physical injury. So we showed increased activation in the cingulate gyrus, the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex, and the anterior insula. Now, what we also found is that uh, those activations were significantly reduced among participants who took acetaminophen. So when people feel rejected, their body is responding as if it's experiencing physical pain. And when you numb people to physical pain, it takes that away.
Last year, Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, came out, sparking much debate about consciousness, reality, psychedelics in medicine, and psychedelics to enhance creativity. Episode two of the show was all about psychedelics and science and music. I delved into the history and future of psychedelic drugs in and outside of the clinic, and I had a lot of fun putting together the music for this one. The 70s was a wild time for music. I played a bit of John Coltrane, a bit of Hendrix, a bit of Jefferson Airplane, the Beatles. It was great. My special guest was Professor Charles Grove, Professor of Psychiatry and Pediatrics at the UCLA School of Medicine. He carried out pioneering research into the therapeutic potential of psilocybin and ayahuasca. Here is a snippet of that interview where he talked me through some of the history of psychedelics in medicine. I was really surprised to see how psychedelic drugs work schedule right, one right. because that definition is that they have no therapeutic potential right. and a high risk of right. being abused. Right. No, but, no but, medical use and or abused drugs. Right. Exactly. So you can understand the latter, but there wasn't really enough research really to... Right. In fact, the research said the contrary, that it did have the well, potential. It was misplaced as a schedule one drug. They're still misplaced as schedule one drugs, yeah. and there needs to be a re-examination of their scheduling because they... They clearly can be used safely mm -hmm. in a clinical research setting. They, they appear to have a therapeutic application when optimal conditions are adhered to. And, um, and for mature individuals who are serious about these compounds, there's, uh, they're not abused. They're only used in a treatment context. So it really doesn't fit the definition of Schedule 1. But being in Schedule 1, especially after the conclusion of the 60s into the 70s and 80s into the early 90s, by its very nature, being a Schedule 1 drug has limited the capacity for investigators to study. But by the early 90s, it was once again possible to, um, to get FDA approval, to get DEA approval. Before the 90s, from the late 60s to the early 90s, it really wasn't possible to get new approvals for studies. Most studies were ordered to close down mm -hmm. or simply you know, ran out of um, support, ran out of the duration of their approval by the early 70s. And later, in the early 2000s, we started to get permission to work with uh, uh, you know, uh, patient population, particularly patient populations that were refractory or non-responsive to conventional treatments. You know, first and foremost, uh, chronic alcoholism, also the existential uh, anxiety, depression, and demoralization of individuals with terminal medical illness, mm -hmm. uh, also people with um, refractory, treatment-resistant, obsessive-compulsive disorder. These are all conditions that often are very difficult to treat using mm -hmm. conventional treatment. Severe chronic PTSD is another. And these have all been studied in, mm -hmm. in either psilocybin or MDMA uh, so let's take a look back now at episode three, Sleep and Rave Culture, which I loved making because it was particularly close to my heart. I spent most of my 20s on the dance floors of underground London clubs, listening to music that I'll still be listening to when I'm 80. This tune playing right now is a classic from one of my favorite nights at the legendary party venue Plastic People. So in this episode, I play tribute to the rich underground New York music scene of the 70s and 80s, which in many ways set the bar for the parties that I got to experience in the UK years later. 
So this is a clip from an interview that I did for the show with Foreigner, aka Adam Cooper, who honestly throws the best parties in LA. He spoke to me in this interview about the significance of the Trinidadian tradition of juve, a celebration that starts at 3 a.m. in the night, before carnival. And he started a party in LA called Junkyard Juve, which is definitely the only party of its kind in LA. And here he gives me a little insight into what it's all about. Juve takes place at the crack of dawn on the Monday morning of Carnival. So you, you don't hit the streets of Juve until 3 a.m. You know, if you want to be fashionably late, you get there at <laughs> 5 a.m. Yeah. And you essentially, as far as the Carnival ritual is concerned, in the streets, marching in the streets with these either live DJs on trucks or steel bands or just straight, you know, improvised instruments that people have beaten. And you're in the streets marching from, you know, under the, the darkness of the morning until the sun rises. You know, it's the opening day mm -hmm. of Carnival mm -hmm. that belongs to the people. You know, it's not the what, what they call pretty mass with, you know, beads and feathers and highly intricate costumes that people took months to make. Juve is really the rawest, like, common denominator for, for all carnival revelers. So I'm not sure if you've read Matthew Walker's book, Why We Sleep, but sleep is kind of important. So I wanted to see what I was risking by staying up all night. In this episode, I spoke to Dr. Robert Foster about the effects of a lack of sleep on our health. So the idea of catching up on sleep, can you catch up on lost sleep after staying up all night? In other words, just shifting things forward six to eight hours and still get the same quality of sleep? There's, I think the first point to make is that there's a huge amount of individual difference about how much sleep we all need. Uh, some people can get away with six hours uh, and be moderately effective. Some people need nine. And the first key thing is that you assess your own sleep needs and you then try and prioritize and defend your sleep needs. The issue about REM versus non-REM, there's a lot of misinformation about this. We tend to have more non-REM sleep during the first half of the sleep episode and more REM sleep during the second half of the sleep episode. It's not absolutely clear what non-REM versus REM sleep is providing. The consensus would be that non-REM sleep is probably best for information processing and memory consolidation, whereas REM sleep is for emotional processing. To get the full benefits of sleep, and, and, and it's worth emphasizing that so much of our ability to function during the day is dependent upon a good night of sleep. So to get the full benefits of sleep, an extended sleep episode consisting of an appropriate amount of non-REM and REM sleep is, is a good thing. What about catching up? It's surprising how long it does take to catch up on restricted sleep. So if you are chronically sleep deprived during the week for whatever reason, the weekend is usually not long enough to catch up fully on your sleep need. And that can take several days. And it's, and it's a problem because of course, 
The biological clock and the sleep need, the sleep pressure, need to be, you know, usually perfectly aligned. And the clock will start to say in the morning, well, it's time you woke up, even if the sleep uh, pressure is very high. So, so you tend never to fully catch up over the weekends, and it takes um, much longer. How long it takes will depend upon the, the individual and, and how chronically sleep deprived you are. And also to add to that, your brain in terms of memory processing needs to go through this, the process every day to take in new memories and transfer them to long-term storage. So let's say you stay up all night, one night, does that mean that you're losing the opportunity to consolidate those memories that evening and so even catching up does yeah. have a negative effect because you're not going to actually yes, be able to process those so, so, so the data are fairly clear on that, it, it, is that if you don't get a good night of sleep, the night following taking in lots of information, your ability to remember that information will be hugely impaired. And it's not just the retention of fact. First of all, your state of tiredness will influence the sorts of emotional stuff you'll remember. So tired people will tend to remember the bad stuff, so you'll have a negative focus if you're tired. And the other thing is it's not just the retention of information. It's whilst we're asleep, the brain is processing information. And so a night of sleep has been shown in a number of really wonderful experiments to enable you to come up with those novel solutions to complicated problems. So it's information processing and the retention of facts that's going on at night during sleep. And both of them are very substantially hit with a, a poor night of sleep. How's your sense of rhythm? Episode 4, The Science of Rhythm, was all about how we find the beat. Moving to music that we hear is an intuitive behaviour bestowed upon us before we can even walk. As we develop into adults, we start doing it on purpose. Now, some of us are quite good at it, and some of us would swear we had two left feet. But can rhythm be taught? I spoke to artist Pegasus Warning about his drum practice and my good friend dancer, choreographer and dance teacher Heidi Prendergast about whether you can teach rhythm. Here's a clip from my interview with Heidi. Is rhythm something that you can teach? Um, <laughs> I want to say yes, but I want to say that it's if it's not innate to you, like if it's not something that you hear naturally, okay, not something that you can physically represent naturally, because you might have to learn to put it in your body. But if it's something that your ear cannot hear, that I'm not sure. Can you teach rhythm if someone can't hear where the rhythm is? Like if they can't clap on the beat, can you teach them? I'm not sure. Have I had students who really struggled with rhythm? Yes. Um, and dance is often, I mean, especially in teaching dance, like you're using pretty simplistic rhythm patterns. You're not really going into much polyrhythm. You're, you're really using a really simple structure. So I find that most kids or people can sort of follow a simple downbeat on like a really basic rhythm, like a 4-4, four, four, which is like basically just like boom, boom, boom. Just like really, it's simple, you know, it's, it's, it's four counts, it's eight counts. And that, I find that most people can hear that. Now, can they put it in their body? Not always. And can you teach them that? Yes, if they can hear it. 
if they can't hear it, I mean, that's so much then that's a different thing. Yeah. It's like with singing, they say like, if you can't hear that you're off key, you probably can't fix it. But if you can hear it, you probably can hear that you're off. And then maybe eventually with the right muscular training, you can fix it. So I would say it's similar with dance. Like if you can hear the beat, I think you could eventually learn how to present it in your body. Would you say that you're left-brained or you're right-brained? In episode five, the left brain versus the right brain, I looked at the long-held belief that people tend to have a personality style or way of thinking that is either right-brained or left-brained. As an artist, is your right brain really doing all the work? Is this a myth, half-myth, or truth? I spoke to artist Judith Sonican, whose work Befriending Hyper Objects was exhibited at Naval in Los Angeles earlier this year. So the show this month is all about the left brain, right brain fallacy, which is the idea that people are predominantly left brains or right brains and that the left and the right brain have different functions, whereas actually they carry out similar functions but just in different ways. The right brain has always been thought to be more involved in seeing the bigger picture and then the left brain sort of sorts out the details. So in terms of the creation of this work, how did you utilise your left brain, would you say, in terms of the logic and the, the details and the, the analytical side of things? Um, well, first, I have thought a lot about the left and right brain within my within my own practice because I feel like they like in order to produce a work they have to synthesize and and merge because like when I see when I have the vision that is more right brain and if I also try to quieten my left brain through like repetitive sound or through dreamscapes or meditative states, as soon as I want to squeeze those visions into matter, I need to deal with measurements mm-hmm. and linear time-space formulas. So I need the left brain to to make it happen. And in this case also, the dimensions are quite logical because they, they build on top of each other. Like for example, the sixth one would be, would be geometry. But then what creates geometry is sound and frequencies like we could see in cymatic experiments with sand mm-hmm. that is exposed to bass frequencies. So that is a logical conclusion, I feel. Yeah, so I think the stru- in order to create a structure, I have to use my left brain. And do you find seeing the bigger picture just as easy as seeing the details, or do you find that you have a preference for one over the other. That changed during my lifetime. Because mm-hmm. when I was younger, I was, I was kind of thinking that I'm not a logical person and I can't, I'm not good at math mm-hmm. and I'm not good at you know, the, lo- the, the logical side of things. But with time, I realized that I couldn't operate without the left. Mm-hmm. And so through meditation that I've now done, it's, seven years, they merged. So the left and the right side of the brain are connected by a bundle of fibres called the corpus callosum. I spoke to psychologist Rex Jung, who works on the neural basis of human intelligence and creativity, about his research into those connections. Hello. Hello, Professor Jung. Thank you so much for making time for the interview. It worked. Good. How are you? I am doing well. How are you? 
I'm good. I'm just finishing up in the lab for the day, so. You and me both, yeah. Yes. So, <laughs> so I'm really excited to talk to you, so I'm going to jump straight in with the questions. What is white matter and how does the technique that you use, diffusion tensor imaging, work? Yeah, so uh, white matter tracks are the wires that uh, connect up the thinking parts of the brain, the myelinated axons, if you will, that uh, connect up neurons, uh, the neuron cell bodies. And uh, in MRI, we can use a technique called diffusion tensor imaging, DTI, to look at uh, diffusion of water down these wires uh, or straws, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, water in a um, water in a, in a glass will diffuse in all sorts of directions in what's called Brownian motion so that water is bouncing around in all sorts of directions but if you if you have a, a, a wire or a straw it will tend to diffuse along a direction coherent with that uh, straw or wire and so with MRI techniques that I physics that I couldn't begin to explain <laughs> to you we are able to track the integrity of those straws or wires by whether the diffusion is along those tracks or across those tracks. So DTI looks at the integrity of the myelinated axons. And if the wires are broken or if the, the insulation on the wires, the myelin is uh, leaky, you'll see diffusion uh, across those uh, tracks into the uh, intracellular space. And if the, if, the, if the integrity is good, then you'll see nice coherence of the diffusion along those myelinated tracks. So the corpus callosum, which links the two hemispheres together, DTI is a really good way at looking at that. Correct. Like, yeah, these coherent tracks like the corpus callosum and, uh, is, is a very good example that you have lots of tracks going in the same direction. Where you get into problems is where you have lots of crossing fibers. And mm -hmm. so... Uh, the, the tracks are going in all sorts of different directions. It's a little harder to resolve these uh, different directions or what they're called kissing fibers uh, or cr crossing fibers where it may look like there's leaking tracks, but it's just that the fact that the roadways are going in all sorts of different directions that are crossing each other. It looks like a spaghetti bowl wow, instead of you know, a, a whole bunch of highways uh, going, uh, cars going in the same direction along the highway. So uh, corpus callosum is a very good example because it's a coherent fibers going all in the same direction. That's really good background to what I really want to talk to you about which is that last year I read an article featuring some of your work in a special edition of Time magazine. According to some of your studies using DTI, individuals with more connections spanning the hemispheres have higher creative reasoning scores. So my question really is, is the same true of musicians and artists? Have you looked at the brains of those individuals? We have looked at the brains of uh, those individuals with a slightly different technique, which we'll probably talk about, uh, not specifically with uh, diffusion tensor imaging. We are going to present DTI data in a conference that we're going to on uh, Society for the Neuroscience of Creativity, which will be March 22nd, I believe, in, uh, in San Francisco. So we will be presenting DTI data there, which I don't want to talk a lot about, but we, we have, uh, we, we use three major techniques when looking at normal human subjects. One is looking at diffusion tensor imaging, which I explained in detail. That looks at the wires that connect up the thinking parts of the brain. 
The second major technique is looking at the cortical mantle thickness of the mantle and the area of cortical mantle. And uh, that is a technique that allows us to see if more neurons or dendritic arbor is present in certain regions of the brain. The third technique is a functional technique that allows us to look at functional activation during a resting scan where people are looking at a crosshair and they are to think about nothing in particular. And it looks at the coherence of different regions that tend to resonate together during a resting scan. So these are the three different techniques that we use. We're presenting on all of these of musicians, but uh, the only one that we have reported on is the cortical mantle, the cortical thickness uh, in musicians. Is that the paper that I've uh, come across, which is entitled Musical Creativity Revealed in Brain Structure, Interplay Between Motor Default Mode and Limbic Networks that was published in Nature a few years ago? That, that is it, yes. Okay. That's the one, yeah. <laughs> um, would you mind summarizing or telling me briefly about what those differences are that you identified? So we, we asked normal students uh, to fill out a questionnaire looking at their musical creative uh, achievements and how much time actually they spent in playing a musical instrument and improvising and, and, and creating music on their own and use that as a basis for musical creativity. So it was a, a survey or questionnaire that relied on self-report, but we were able to get a nice distribution of responses. So some people don't play music, they just listen to music. Some people play music, but it's only practicing music that other people have written. Some people, however, create their own music and are not only playing uh, and learning an instrument and mastering it, but uh, improvising and creating music on their own. And we wanted to know how much time people spent doing that in their musical creativity. And then we correlated that with cortical thickness measures in the cortical mantle and found a distributed network of uh, lots of different regions of the brain that were related to the amount of time that people spent in their musical creativity. Episode six was about grief and what goes on in the brain during the grieving process. I looked at the ways music plays a role in grief, from celebrating the lives of those who have passed across different cultures to helping people cope with the trauma of loss. I interviewed Dr. Mary Frances O'Connor for this episode. She's an associate professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Arizona and studies the neurobiological, immune and autonomic parameters that vary between individual grief responses. This is what I learned about normal versus complex grief. Hi, Dr. O'Connor. Thank you so much for being a guest on the show this month. Welcome to Sound Science. It's a pleasure to be here. So a lot of your work focuses on bereavement and some of the neurobiological, immune and autonomic parameters that vary between individual grief responses. So I came across one of your papers that was published back in 2008 entitled Craving Love, Enduring Grief Activates Brain's Reward Center. And I found the paper incredibly fascinating and actually quite surprising. So I was hoping you could share with the audience what that study was about and some of the discoveries that you made. Sure. So this uh, study was quite exciting. Neurobiology of grief is definitely in its infancy. So trying to understand how our neurons take in information about the loss of someone we love dearly 
how does it process that information? How does the brain understand what happened? And then over time, how do we adapt to the fact that this person is no longer there? So this was really uh, the second study. The first was just sort of very descriptive, just sort of can we even put people who are grieving into a scanner and, and scan their brain. The second right. study, the one you're referring to, really did try to contrast people who are adapting resiliently, which thankfully is most of us, as difficult as grief is, most of us are fairly resilient over time. But contrasting that group with the group who don't seem to adapt very well, who continue to have this severe, persistent yearning for the person and also uh, usually functional impairment. So some aspect of getting to work is, is really overwhelming or they're not able to care for their family the way that they wish that they could. So contrasting these two groups by showing them photos of the person who had died, like if you showed someone a photograph album, we showed them those pictures in the scanner and contrasted them with pictures of a stranger. So the missionary people, and we wanted them to be thinking specifically about the person they had lost. Right. So when we look at these two groups, um, if you looked at everyone all together, we saw lots of areas related to emotion and memory, um, the, the painful aspects of, of grief. But when you contrasted the two groups, there was really only one brain area that showed differences in its response to these photos. And that was this nucleus accumbens area, which we know is a part of what we call the reward network. So when we see something that we have experienced as, as fulfilling needs that we have, as being a pleasurable experience, there's machinery in our brain that tells us this is a good thing, we should keep doing this. And seeing our loved ones, being with our loved ones is certainly one of those things. When we bond with a mate or when we have a child, they're really strong chemicals in our brain that just we keep seeing them over and over again. Dopamine, oxytocin, um, the bonding hormone it's sometimes called, and also opioids are very densely shuttled back and forth between neurons in this nucleus accumbens region. The thing that seemed strange initially was why would you get more of this reward circuitry activated in people who aren't doing as well? They're looking at a photo of someone that they yearn for, and yearning is maybe another way of saying craving. So it seems, and we don't have longitudinal studies that show this, but you could interpret the result, that most of us, as we come to understand the world without our loved one, our brain is able to recognize that the photo of this person doesn't any longer predict that we're going to see them. That as much as we may have memories and good memories when we look at a photograph, it's not the same as cueing us to try and reach out for them. For the people who have complicated grief, they do seem to persist in really wanting that person. Although they cognitively know the person is gone, they persist in wanting them to be there. It's an overwhelming feeling. And in fact, the activation in this region was correlated. So those who had higher activation in this area also told us they had the highest levels of yearning when we just asked them, how much do you yearn on a daily basis for your deceased loved one? So episode seven was all about the women 
Women have been pivotal to the advancement of science. Some you may have heard of, others remain unsung heroes. Inspired by Massive, who have published an awesome science hero series, I honored three very special women, and here's the piece I read on computer scientist, mathematician, and rocket scientist, Annie Easley. Annie Easley, the barrier-breaking mathematician who helped us explore the solar system. There's a famous photo of Annie Easley. She's standing next to a huge control panel with dials, lights, buttons from floor to ceiling. She looks like a character in a movie commanding a fearless space mission, but it's real. It was taken in 1981 in the central control room of NASA's Lewis Engine Research Building in Cleveland, Ohio, as part of a profile on Easley for a feature story in Science and Engineering newsletter. Although Easley never had a movie made of her life, she was a hidden figure in her own right, as a barrier-breaking mathematician and rocket scientist who worked on countless NASA projects for over 30 years. Annie Jean Easley was born in 1933 and raised by her single mother in Birmingham, Alabama. She lived there until she left the college at Xavier University in New Orleans, Louisiana. Easley started off studying pharmacy. I just thought it would be fascinating, she said in a NASA oral history interview. Now, it may have had something to do with going to the corner drugstore where they had all the candy and all the ice cream. Easley left school and briefly returned home to Alabama in 1945. When she first registered to vote in Alabama, she was subjected to a Jim Crow era poll tax and a test on Alabama's history. She used her college background to help others overcome the onerous voting system. She married and moved with her husband to Cleveland to be near his family. Once there, she found out that the only pharmacy school in the area had closed, so she had to look elsewhere for work. In the newspaper, she read a story about a pair of twin sisters who worked as computers performing mathematical computations for the engineers at the National Advisory Committee for Astronauts, also known as NACA, a forerunner to modern NASA the same NACA, the hidden figure Katherine Johnson worked at in Virginia. It sounded interesting, and she'd always been good at maths, so the next day she drove to NACA at what was then called the Lewis Research Station and applied for a job. Two weeks later, she was working there. Initially, she worked as a computer, in similar roles to Johnson and the twins she'd read about. But Easley was an eclectic, multi-talented mathematician. When computers, the machines, not the humans, came about, she learned assembly language and Fortran and became a programmer. She worked on batteries, including studies on battery-powered vehicles similar to modern-day hybrid cars. She worked on shuttle launches that measured destruction of ozone and helped test and design the NASA nuclear reactor at Plumbrook. Her most famous work was on the Centaur rocket. The Centaur was a first-of-its-kind rocket using a unique fuel system, and its legacy endures to this day. When Surveyor 1, the first American space probe to land on an extraterrestrial body, landed on the moon, it was powered by a Centaur rocket. A Centaur launched the Cassini probe to Saturn. When NASA's InSight spacecraft lands on Mars, it will have gotten there using an Atlas V-401 rocket, a modern iteration of the Centaur. Though she stayed for over 30 years at NASA, having more good memories than bad, she was clear-eyed about the racial discrimination she experienced. 
She related a story of being photographed, along with her co-workers, for NASA promotional photographs. She was humiliated to find that no matter where the photos were used, she was cut out of them. She was denied financial aid that NASA gave to other employees to pay for additional college courses. No reason was given. Still, that is not enough to deter me from my life goals, she later said. You keep going because there are people who have authority and I think sometimes they abuse it. It makes them think, I'm in charge if I say no. Easy retired from NASA in December 1989. She skied, played tennis and volunteered. She worked part-time in real estate and occasionally tutored. She passed away in 2011. Reflecting on her life and the obstacles she overcame, she said, I think of the poem, Mother to Son by Langston Hughes. Life for me ain't no crystal stair, but you've got to keep struggling. Episode 8, For the Love of Music, I focused on how the brain's ability to make predictions about what we hear might explain how musical sounds become rewarding. But I also had clinical psychologist Dr. Soph back on the show to explain some of the other reasons why we love music so much. Here she is talking about music, memory and emotion. When you hear music, you often remember something. Music often takes us back to a specific place and a specific time. I'm sure you can think of some songs that make you feel nostalgic. Oh yeah. So what people talk about in terms of memories linked to music is mainly nostalgia. So we've talked, for example, that music can make you feel happy, it can make you feel empathic, it can make you feel the sadness of someone else. But actually, in terms of research, nostalgia is the thing we talk about the most. So I want to focus on the years of being 12 to 22. You know, these are your most formative (laughs) years. Yeah, they actually call this the reminiscence bump, which is so interesting. The reminiscence bump is the idea that all memories associated with between the ages of 12 and 22 are the ones that we remember most strongly. But in terms of music, one of the reasons we feel emotion so strongly when we hear it is because of the memories we've made that are associated with music. And I want to talk about those formative years because, as I said, this is the music that kind of shapes us the most. Even if you consider yourself really kind of mature and sophisticated now, you'll notice that you'll hear the beginning riff of a song that you knew of when you were a teenager, a few early bars, and suddenly you're back there in your teenage years, you're feeling all of these emotions and experiences and nostalgia. The part of your brain where you store memories of your past is in the medial prefrontal cortex, this bit behind your forehead. And that's the same place that you store the link between music memory and your emotion. So why is it that music from our teenage years elicits such strong emotion? Well, think about those years. It tends to be the first time in your life when you're trying on your own version of your identity. You know, you're you're trying on a little bit of someone else's identity, then another person's, then another's. You're finding out what you like. You're aligning yourself with other people. You're becoming part of bigger groups. You're creating a feeling of belonging. So firstly, when you're listening to music, you're having these really strong emotional uh, experiences that perhaps you haven't had before. So you're creating this sense of identity. At the same time, you have this huge hormonal explosion 
and your brain is rewiring. So in simple terms, teenage years, you're having your first breakups, you're studying, you're maybe stressed, you're in a group of friends, you're partying, you're listening to music. Everyone's teenage years have a soundtrack. And you've already talked about where dopamine comes from, these feel-good hormones that make you feel great. Right. But imagine what you've talked about, plus the hormonal explosion, the sexual explosion, the brain rewiring, the empathy I've talked about. And suddenly you're listening to music. It's like the most intense emotional experience of your life. And it's so strongly encoded into your brain that as an adult, when you hear music, part of the emotional response is this reactivation of these early memories that are really strongly encoded. We're almost at the end of the show. I hope that you've enjoyed this recap episode and if you haven't listened to any of these episodes and want to, you can listen back on the DubLab website. They're all up there under archives. So last month I spoke to Oleg Savitsky, CEO and founder of Endel, a new bit of technology where neuroscience and artificial intelligence collide to create a unique ambient sound on the spot that helps you focus, relax and sleep. And it's based on location, time and the weather. Here's a quick look back at the interview from last month. It's not just an app, like we've started with building an app, but actually Endel is a technology. And that technology uh, from day one has been envisioned to be integrated into, you know, cars and smart TVs and hotel rooms. And yeah, we will definitely go beyond the app. That's incredible. I mean, for someone like myself who has always been drawn to soundscapes, I really like the concept. And I mean, it sounds like you've really taken that genre to another level, not by just um, creating these soundscapes, but moving it into the realm of generative music and making it personalized via machine learning. So the app launched in November last year. How did you come up with the idea for Endel and what's the journey been like? Well, um, you know, I always wanted to build something like that, to be honest, because I'm, I'm a huge Brian Eno fan, mm-hmm. or rather Brian Eno nerd. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, I've been, you know, I've been listening, I've been, while working, I've been listening to his, like, musical airports and just great music, you know, the, the classic records. And it, it then struck me that, you know, like, his ideas of self-evolving compositions, uh, they kind of, you know, clash with the fact that you have to, you know, turn the record every 40 minutes or every 20 minutes so i'm like why don't we i went to the team to my team that i've been working with with for six years and i said why don't we create this technology that procedurally generates this ambient soundscape and at the time we actually we have been working on something else we have been working on a kids apps brand we've been building digital art for children and those apps had yeah, so they had a lot to do, those apps had a lot to do with the correlation of color and form and sound, um, basically synesthesia. Oh, awesome. So what we have been, yeah, so one of the apps actually allowed you to create, um, you know, music while drawing. So you would pick a color, you would create a drawing, and at the same time we would generate a, a musical composition depending on what, like, you know, the colors you choose, the form you use, things like that. So I went to the team and we have reused some of the technology we have built, like some of the sound generation technology, and built a prototype. 
And at the time, I met a Russian physicist who wrote a book called The Physics and Anatomy of Music. And I, you know, basically told him, hey, we're working on this technology that creates ambient soundscapes that helps you put in a state of flow, which frequencies, scales, and tones do we have to use to kind of help people focus, mm-hmm. relax, and sleep? And the first thing he told me was, you know, it has to be personalized. There is no song or even like a static soundscape that will work for you in any, you know, situation. Like it, it, it has to do, it has a lot to do with, you know, what time of the day it is, what weather it is, what your heart rate is, like the context of your day. So we started digging into the science behind that and we landed on two scientific pillars. One being, you know, the science of the circadian rhythms, you know, that internal clock that regulates the phases through which you're going through the day. And yeah, because of that, we detect, you know, where you are, we detect your location, we, from there, we understand the, the weather and, you know, when sun rises and sets, where you are, the amount of light you're exposed to, and we adapt our soundscapes to that. And then there is obviously, you know, the neuroscience behind how certain frequency scales and then tones can influence your cognitive state. So we're, yeah, as soon as we understand the, the phase, the, the circadian phase you're going through, we're supporting that with, with particular sounds. friends is the end of the show thank you so much for tuning in for show notes please go to www.soundsciencepodcast.com you can listen back by going to the archives at www.dublab.com and if you want the podcast version of the show you can find it on itunes or wherever you get your podcast i'd also like to say a massive thank you to peter who has been instrumental to the production of this show James and Rachel, who have both been my Pro Tools angels, and Nathia, who does an incredible job turning every show into a podcast. Have a good day, everyone. See you next month.